Romans chapter 15. We're going to finish up Romans chapter 15 today. And um, we're going to look at the last four verses from 30 to 33, where Paul is going to ask a prayer request of these Roman believers. And we're going to look at what his prayer request is and then what we can learn from it. So uh, as we do that today, let's read uh, together Romans chapter 15, verse 30 through 33. It says, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. May you bless it. Uh, May uh, today these words not be mine, but may they be yours. May your Holy Spirit speak to each of us and what you would have for us today. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So what is Paul asking for here? It seems like a short little paragraph there at the end of... uh, of, of this of, of the book of Romans near the end here before he goes into the final greetings and everything. But it's a really important prayer request. And uh, the way I want to look at it is I want to start first and look at exactly what he's asking these Roman believers for. We're used to prayer requests. You know, we ask people to pray for this. We ask people to pray for that. Uh, we do it during our announcement time sometimes. And Paul's no different. And he asked the people, he asked these Roman Christians to pray specifically for two things. He says here, uh, and he starts with the first one. He says in verse 31, you find what he's asking, he's asking them to pray for. He asks for protection from his enemies in Jerusalem. He says that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. Um, now, the, this word here, disobedient, actually is better translated as unbelievers. If you look in any other version other than the uh, New American Standard, it will say they're unbelievers. And that's actually a better translation of it. Um, but basically what he's saying is, is that he, uh, he fears that these, these people are going to come against him. And um, so he's asking for protection from these unbelieving Jews. He's asked for this before. This is not something new to him. He, he constantly uh, is asking for protection from his enemies. In 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. Now, the difference is, in this case, he's being very specific with with naming who his enemies are that he feels are going to come against him. And the reason is because of what the situation is that he's facing when he goes back into Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the center of Judaism. Well, what had Paul done by becoming a believer? Here's Paul, who was the chief of the... The, 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 the scribes, the one who knew more about Jewish law and Jewish faith than, than probably any other man alive at that time. For He was very well trained. He was well educated. He went around persecuting the church, trying to kill Christians. He is like a Jew of Jews. He is the greatest Jew around for that time, one of them. And then what happens? God gets a hold of him on the road to Damascus, and he gets gloriously saved, and all of a sudden his life completely changes. Well, To the Jewish leaders, they don't look at that as a good thing. They look at him as a traitor. And so if Paul is sitting here going back into this, this, this hotbed of Judaism, Jerusalem, because that's where the temple's at, that's where all of the, that's where (coughs) the center of Judaism is. If he's going back into that, 
He's walking right back in to where the majority of his enemies are at. And so he's asking specifically for this prayer that these unbelieving Jews who view him as a traitor and will do anything to see him arrested and put to death, that he would be protected from them. Um, Acts 20 verse 3 actually says that they had tried to go into other cities and form plots against him. It says, and he was spent three months there. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set seal for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So they had actually gone around and in all these other cities where he had went, they had tried to go and get people to arrest him and throw him in prison. They had tried to kill him in a lot of other places. And instead of what most of us would do and saying, you know what, I think I'll avoid Jerusalem and go as far away as possible. Paul said, you know what, I really need to go back there and make a report to the churches. And so he's trying to go back in the middle of all these people who are trying to kill him. So he asked for protection from that. Now, what's the second thing he asked for? He says that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. Now, what was his service for Jerusalem? What had he done? Well, if you remember back, he's talked about this collection that he's made for the saints. Now, he didn't ask the Roman Christians to actually contribute anything to it because of their distance away. He had gotten the collection of money from all these churches that he had been going through uh, as he made his missionary journey and, and, and eventually was trying to head to Spain ultimately. Well, um, so he's got all this money and he's going to take it back to the, to the Jewish church. And all of these, all of these churches he's collecting it from are not Jewish churches. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles. And as he's gone through these cities, he created churches. He's won people to the Lord. And he said, listen, the head, because at this time, Jerusalem was kind of the center of Christianity and everything else spread out from there. And he's saying, hey, you know, to show your solidarity with these Christians who are being persecuted in Jerusalem, because why? That's the hotbed. That's the center also of Judaism who wants to destroy Christianity. So he says, Give me your your money. Let's take up a collection. Let's go help these believers in Jerusalem and, and, and show our support for them. So that's what he had done. So he had this collection and this gift that he was going to present to the church. Now, there's a problem here because the church in Jerusalem, while they were all everyone who knew Christ as a believer was part of the church. They didn't. They did not totally see eye to eye on how the church should run and on how these Gentile believers that Paul is kind of the the de facto head of. He's the missionary to these Gentiles. So him coming in as a Gentile kind of the guy who's gone around starting these Gentile churches might not come across so well with some of the Jewish believers. Now, why is that? Well, in Acts chapter 15 this Acts chapter 15 happens right before Paul leaves on this missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 15, um, we're only going to read a few verses of it, but in Acts chapter 15, they have, we have what's called the first council and base the first church council. And what's happened is there's a problem in the church. There's disagreements. Remembering what's remember what's happening here. You have a lot of Jews in Jerusalem. So the people who are getting saved are primarily Jewish, but you also have this handful of Gentile believers who come to Christ and they're also part of the church. Well, read, uh, look at verses five and six. It's in verses five and six. We see what the problem is in the church at Jerusalem. It says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who have believed stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. 
And then what happens in verse six, it says the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So what happened was these Pharisees stand up and say, hey, and they're believers, they're Christian, they're Christians, they're Jewish by culture, but they're Christians. And they say, you know, you have to basically become Jewish in order to be a Christian. And so um, that's the approach they're taking. Well, the apostles and, and of course, the Gentiles, you know, they're being told, hey, you have to like now become another nationality, another culture in order to actually consider yourself a Christian. And, and so they, they have a church council and they argue and just like you would think a church council would happen um, in order to try to solve this problem. So they get all the apostles together and it says uh, the apostles and the elders. So whoever, all those people that were in that church, they come together to decide what's the right answer here. What do we have to do? Well, you can read on through the chapter and basically they, 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 they do. They go back and forth on what the right thing to do is. And then in verse 13, James stands up and James is, is the, he's like the pastor at the church of Jerusalem, one of the senior pastors. And he, he steps up and, and he starts, he's, he gives the final, uh, basically the final speech. And then um, all the way in verse, uh, verse 28 and 29, we see what happens. Um, this is them giving their final report back to the other churches, the Gentile churches. And they say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things and will do well, you will do well, farewell. And so their final judgment here is you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. And that the scripture only requires faith and that they ask them, hey, to live out your faith. You know, th- these are the, we ask you to abstain from sin, which is what any Christian would be asked of. And so because of that, you can imagine that just because a decision is made, does everybody always happy with that decision? No, that's not usually what happens. So you can imagine that. And then what, right after this, Paul actually leaves. So. The decision is made, and then Paul takes off on this missionary journey. He doesn't really stay around to see what's the after effect of this. How does the church get along? How do they implement this ruling within the Christian community? And so now he's gotten all these gifts together. And and by the way, he's gone out now and started all these churches that are not following Jewish custom and tradition. And so he's got all of these gifts from these churches, and he's going to take them back and present them to the Jewish church, which is primarily Jewish and say, you know, we, we're part of you and we want to support you. And, you know, just as you would feel like if you presented a gift to someone and then they basically didn't accept it, that'd be like a slap in the face. Well, all of a sudden now he'd have a bigger problem because he's got all these churches that have been started and now a split occurs in the body of Christ because they can't get along. And so it was very important to him as to how the church in Jerusalem accepted that gift from the gentile believers um you know we kind of understand gift giving and stuff but even in that culture and in in some modern cultures the way you give a gift and the way you receive a gift is very important to show your level of respect and acceptance of that other person um so in japan when when we give someone a business card here you know people exchange business cards you pull them out of your wallet you give them to somebody and and you know you you might throw it in your pocket or whatever thanks i appreciate that that's not the way things happen in Japan. Somebody gives you a business card. Um, I got given a couple of business cards there, and one of them I kind of didn't know this before I got it and probably showed a little level of disrespect. But 
Um, so they give you the business card. You're supposed to take it and look at it and appreciate it and, and turn it over and probably ask a question about it. And you would never, ever stick that business card back in your wallet or in your back pocket or your, even your front pants pocket. You would always put it in your shirt pocket because that shows that you respect the, the fact that that person cared enough to give you your, their, their personal information um, and uh, to want to have contact with you as a person. So it, it's, and that's the kind of level of gift-giving exchange and courtesies that went into like ancient Near Eastern um, philosophy of gift-giving and stuff. So it was very important as to how this was accepted because it would show that the church was united as one and they accepted these Gentile churches as true churches of Christ. So all of that, those two things were integral to him then closing these last few verses after the prayer request by saying in verse 32, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. In other words, he thought it was integral that he go and meet these fellow believers and have all this work out so that the Jews and the Gentiles could be one church, which goes right in with Romans because We've already discussed the, the issues that were coming up in Rome that apparently they had those two segments in the Roman church. And um, and so he's saying, I want to make sure these are good so that when I come to you, it can be with joy. Um, and, and then he ends with a request for God's peace to be on them. Uh, and, and, and by ending it with uh, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Uh, it seems, you know, at, at first look, it could be like the end of the book there based on the amen, but it's not. And there's a whole nother chapter where he continues to, to greet all these people in Rome. Now, that's just what he's asking. But there's so much more there that I think we can learn, because what I want to do is I want to look at it. We know what Paul's asking for and why he's asking it, but I want to look at what we can learn from Paul's prayer request. Because too many times when we ask prayer requests, when we see prayer requests, you know, I look at the Valley Baptist prayer list every week that I'm sure a lot of you see as well. And, and you see it and it's like, okay, well, you know, I want to pray for these and you pray for them. But do we really pray for them? Do we really take the time that we need to, to put into prayer and expect God to answer and really see the the answers like what Paul was able to see here. And so I want to take a little more time to look at his prayer and even look at how it was answered and um, see what we can learn from Paul's prayer request. The first thing that we see here in verse 30 is, um, is is that prayer, I believe, is work. It says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Now that word there, strive together, Actually is the same word that's used to, as, as far as a sports activity, to contend, to, 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 to put full effort into it. If you go out and play a basketball game, or if you go, you know, on Thanksgiving we watch football. Okay, I watched a little tiny bit of football. They were really into football. And, um, but you, what, those teams don't go out there and just walk along the field. You don't just go out there and just kind of line up haphazardly and throw a ball a little bit. No, no, no. They go out there. And they are ready to go. They're down in they're down in formation. They're hitting each other with full strength, and and they're trying to knock the other person out. Why? Because they want to win. They're putting their full effort into it. That's the same idea that's given here behind prayer. And it's when I was reading this, it was just another conviction to me of like how much effort do I put behind my prayers? How much time? How much effort? How much energy do I expend putting it into prayer? 
the one illustration that I could think of in the scripture of, of, of how much effort could go into prayer is Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in his last night before he's about to be arrested and tried and ultimately sent to the cross, and he's sitting there praying um, in the garden, what does the Bible describe his prayer like? They describe it as he was sweating drops of blood because he was so earnest in his prayers that the capillaries in his head were actually breaking and, and causing the sweat to be mingled with blood. Now that is some energy and some effort and some determination in our prayers. And that's the kind of energy and effort that we're supposed to be putting into our prayers. But here's the here, I think, is an even more important point by that is that as with the rest of what we are asked to do as believers, we do not do it alone. Because how does he open up verse 30 there? He says, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit. Anytime we're asked to do something hard as a believer in our Christian life, we don't do it alone. We come into everything that we face in our life and we have, we have Jesus Christ on our side. He says that he, he, na- he names the one thing that every single believer has that will help them through any situation that's difficult or hard or anything we're being asked to do that would tax us spiritually. He says, in, in, uh, he says first that we're one in Jesus Christ. What does Jesus Christ say? What does he do for us? In Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, it says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Anything that Christ asks us to do, yeah, it seems hard to put that effort into prayer, to put that time into prayer, but through Christ we can do it. The Bible also says in Philippians four thirteen, I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. That's all things, including pray. Um, and then the, the, the second thing is that we all have the same Holy Spirit. He says, uh, he says there, to, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. The reason that he could appeal to the same Lord Jesus Christ is that all of us are saved the same way. We didn't come to God through any other way than by Jesus Christ. And once we became believers, even though Jesus Christ is not here physically with us anymore, what did he do before he left? He said that I give you the spirit and every single Christian, no matter where they're at in the world, has the same Holy Spirit indwelling them. And therefore, they have access to the same power no matter where they're at. Rome, and we, we can actually look in the same chapter and see that. Romans chapter 15, verse 13 says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 19, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to be able to do what God has asked us to do. And it's and, and the Bible actually tells us that when we don't know how to pray, that's when the Holy Spirit actually prays for us. And so the point is that we pray. We may not know exactly how to say it. We may not know what to say. But the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the work and we can rely on his strength and his power in order to do it. Um, he's motivating them in verse 30 to join him in prayer Based on love of the Holy Spirit. And that's what binds all believers together. You know, he didn't ask the Romans for money. But what he's telling them is, hey, even if you wanted to give money, we don't have a postal service that you can send it to me. We don't have, 
We don't have, um, you know, PayPal, so you can send me money. But what you can do, Roman believers, is you can pray. And that prayer is just as important as every dollar that was given from all those other churches that he collected it from. And, and it's no different today. The Holy Spirit is what joins us together as believers in the work around the world. So when this week, if we, can, if you, if we remember to pray for, for Michael and Kelly uh, in Tanzania, uh, if we remember to pray for the Tans in the Philippines, if we remember to pray for all these other people, you are joining in their work. Even if you can't go to Mexico and help build the, the house down there, every prayer that undergirds that effort is supporting that effort and that work that happens down there in Mexico. Everything that every time we pray, if we're doing it in the power of the spirit, if we're doing it with this earnest striving, then that effort is going to supporting that no matter where it is around the world. You know, there's been one great thing about the between my travels and getting to go to Iraq and Kuwait and and, uh, um, you know, all around the, the Pacific Ocean and all these other places is everywhere I go. When you meet a fellow believer, it doesn't matter what your culture is. It doesn't matter what your language is. The Holy Spirit, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life makes you a brother or sister in Christ. And you have something in common that race and culture and everything else has no bearing on. And so when I was in Iraq and I got to meet with, I got, I got to know we had uh, guards at our gate who were um, from Kenya and Uganda. And, um, you know, that I've not, I don't speak Swahili. I don't speak um, or whatever the other language was they spoke. I don't speak those languages. And I don't know what it's like to live in a country that has, um, they have been through uh, lots of, of strife and government overthrow, just all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and their families were living on basically a dollar a day and things like that. They thought $20 a week was a great paycheck. Um, you know, I can't even imagine what it's like to live like that. But I can tell you as I spoke to those, as I got to know those men, and I even went to watch them worship, and they would just sing their hearts out to the Lord. And getting to hear, um, see the Holy Spirit working in their lives and realize that I have more in common with that Swahili or that Ugandan or that Kenyan at the gate than I do with that American Marine that I work with on the flight line every day because... They have the Holy Spirit, and that binds me together with them as a brother in Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. And so as we lift each other up and as we lift up the, mis- the missions work around the world, as we lift up people who are working for Christ, you have a part in that mission through your prayers. And so prayer is work that we need to be putting into it. But then secondly, the, the other thing we see here is that you, you saw the prayer request there. The prayer request that the, the, the gift would be uh, accepted and the prayer request that he would be protected from his enemies. Well, when we look at how that is answered in the book of Acts, we, we get to see this general picture that prayer is not necessarily answered the way we would always like. But it's always in the best way. I want to I want to take a few minutes here and I want to look at the book of Acts and, and just kind of work through some passages. And I want you to see how Paul's prayer was actually answered, keeping in mind what he asked them to pray for. Um, at this point in time, he's in Corinth. It's about A.D. 56 to 57. Um, it's after the events of Acts 15 where they've had the church council and the Jews and the Gentiles and deciding all of that. He's he, see, he's in Greece, he's in Corinth, and he's he's written he's writing this letter to the Romans. That's Acts chapter twenty, about verses one through three. 
And, um, and, and so he's writing that letter. 80, 56, 57. Well, in the rest of Acts chapter 20, Paul is going to go on from Corinth. He's going to meet with representatives from various churches. Um, he, before leaving Greece, he, he goes and stops in a bunch of different cities. And of ending in this city called Miletus, he has an emotional meeting with the elders from the, from the Ephesus church where he, he tells them how much he's poured his life into them and how much he cares about them and the fact that he may not see them again. Um, and, uh, and from there, he leaves Miletus, he leaves Greece, he sails to Tyre, where, um, the sa- where, where, as you will see happen constantly, the believers in Tyre tell Paul, hey, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. Because remember, Paul is ultimately heading to Jerusalem from here to take this gift back to them. Well, the believers there in Tyre say, don't go. This is, this is not a good idea. You're going to get hurt or killed or arrested or something. Um, and then he goes to Caesarea where the exact same thing happens. Well, Paul answers these, these, um, the, 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 the remarks about not going by saying that he's willing to die for Christ in Jerusalem if that be God's will. But he continues with his plan to go to Jerusalem. Well, finally, in Acts chapter 21, the next chapter later, Paul's entre- Paul and his group arrive in Jerusalem. And here we see the first answer to his prayer request. They met with James, who was the pastor of the church there in Jerusalem. They met with the other leaders at the church. And their report of God's work among the Gentiles was received gladly. So everything went great. The first prayer request is answered wonderfully. Um, In fact, in order to demonstrate solidarity and to just do one more thing to join these churches together, Paul even goes and agrees to go to the temple and participate in a purification ritual, uh, a Jewish purification ritual, just to show that he's while he's been working with the Gentile churches, he's also Jewish and he's willing to to um, put aside his 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 uh, his his freedom and liberty in order to um, be be a part of that church in that way. So everything goes great. That first prayer request answered exactly the way Paul wanted it to be. Well, then what happens next? So now he's in Jerusalem. Everything's going great. He's with the churches. And in Acts chapter 21 from verse 27 all the way to the end of chapter 22 or near the end of chapter 22. A week after he arrived there, these Jews from Asia come and they start stirring up the crowds in Jerusalem against Paul. He'd been able to keep a low profile up until this point. The Roman soldiers, it actually got to the point where the Roman soldiers had to intervene with the crowds in order to stop them from stoning Paul. And, um, and, uh, and so they placed him under arrest for his own protection. And, and Paul actually got a chance to speak to the entire Jewish crowd and share his testimony of conversion, which, of course, that didn't make them happy. So they, um, they ended up um, trying to continue to stone him, uh, and the Roman soldiers had to take him into custody to protect him. Um, well, after he gets arrested by the Romans, they take him to uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin because it starts with the Jewish rulers and then it goes up to the Roman rulers. So the Jewish Sanhedrin were the the leaders of the Jewish community, but they were governmental leaders, but they were also religious leaders. So he's standing in front of them and in the front of the Sanhedrin, he, de- he defends himself. And of course, they don't want to hear it because they hate him. They want to kill him. And, uh, and, and so they, um, they, once again, the same thing happens. It's a huge uproar. The, the Roman soldiers have to take him away for his own protection and he's in jail. Um, Christ appears to Paul in jail in, in chapter 23 around verse 10 and 11 and, uh, and comforts him telling him that he would be in Rome and share his testimony. Now I'm sure at this point in time, remember Paul's pl- prayer was, 
Lord, give me some protection from these people who hate me. And now he's sitting in jail and, and you know, his whole plan is I got to go to Rome. I got to go to Rome. I got to go to Rome. And then I got to go to Spain from there, but I got to go to Rome. And he's sitting in a jail in Jerusalem with people who want to kill him and other people who are willing to support them because the Roman government liked to keep people happy. So they, they could kill him if they wanted to. So now what happens is now he has to appear before the Roman rulers. So he goes in Acts chapter 23 and um, he was he was transferred to Caesarea, which is kind of outside there, so that he would be a little safer. And then the Roman governor Felix came along to examine him and find out why he was in prison and why the Jews wanted him killed. And um, and then Paul actually was there in prison for two years. Um, after the two year mark, a new governor Festus came along and Paul got a chance to talk to him directly. And Festus um, Festus heard his whole testimony of conversion and all of that. And then uh, at that point, Festus uh, in, and then um, uh, and then that at that point, Paul actually appealed to Caesar because Festus couldn't find a reason to kill him. But he also wanted to let the Jewish people kind of have what they want. Uh, he was going to kind of give him back and let him be punished by the Jews and everything else. That's when Paul said, hey, uh, guess what, guys, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this to me. And they were like, whoa, whoa, you're a Roman citizen? That means we can't kill you and we also can't just whip you for no reason. So he, they sent him to Rome. Uh, right? They, they, that's when Festus ordered Paul to be taken to Rome. Well, now things look like they're shaping up a little more like Paul wanted. So he wanted to be protected from his enemies. But now it looks like being arrested by his enemies has actually caused him to end up where he wanted to go in the first place. And so we go on into Acts chapter 27. And up into chapter 28, and we find out that Paul, under guard, he, he sets sail to Rome. He has a shipwreck along the way on the island of Malta. They arrive in Rome around A.D. 59. Now, remember, the, we started all this in A.D. 56, the end of 56, the beginning of 57. So you're looking at about two and a half, maybe two, two and a half, three years. And finally, two, two and a half years later, we come to Acts chapter 28, verses 13 through 16. And in Acts chapter 28, verse 13 through 16, we see the final end of where he wanted his prayer to be, to be going towards. From there, we sailed around and we arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli, where we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three ends to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So here we are two and a half years later. Paul has been arrested. Paul has been imprisoned and had the chance to appeal to the Jewish elders, the, the Roman rulers and all these other things. And his ultimate goal was to be greeted with joy by the Roman church. And he was able to do exactly that. But I'm quite sure when Paul was asking that prayer request to say, hey, give me protection from my enemies, what he did not have in mind was, wow, I think that means that my enemies should arrest me, imprison me, try to kill me, and then ultimately send me to Rome where I get the chance to defend myself, but I also get to meet with all the Roman believers that I want to do anyway. But God had it all worked out in his own perfect way. And many times when we are looking at our situation and we're sitting there saying, you know, 
Why is it not working out the way I'm wanting it to work out? Why is it not working out the way I'm praying for it to work out? Maybe it is going towards what God wants it to be at, but it's just taking a little bit different route than what we think it should. And many times that's the hard part because when you're in that different route and you're taking that left turn and you're going, God, it's supposed to go straight here. It's not supposed to be a left turn. God has another plan and another purpose that is far above what knowledge we have of that situation. And of course, Paul ends in the book of Acts. What happens in Rome is he actually spends the uh, two years under just house arrest. He's able to have a great ministry in Rome. He's not, he's not in a prison. He's sitting there under house arrest. People are coming to him every day. He's, he's, he's teaching them the word of God. People are getting saved. He's, he's, he, they're bringing him food and everything else. So he has this great ministry for two years. Um, apparently, we don't know for sure, but it looks like he possibly was released, went to Spain on another missionary journey, and ultimately, though, he does get rearrested, taken back to Rome, and ultimately gets put to death by Nero about... Uh, about eight years later in AD 68. But all of that, from that Paul praying for protection, not knowing how God was going to make that protection look, but protection ended up being a prison, a shipwreck, and ultimately house arrest in Rome that worked out for God's glory. And that's what we need to keep our eyes focused on. When we're in the middle of praying and we don't know why things are happening the way they are, can we Trust God that he's got that situation in control. And that comes down to the last thing that we can learn here from Paul's prayer. And that is that God's will is what ultimately determines what will happen. Look at verse 32 and 33. It says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. He says, I will come to you in joy by the will of God. And then he ends with now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So. All of that, he based on the fact that ultimately God's will would be in control. That's actually how he started the book of Romans as well. In Romans chapter 1 verse 10, he's, he, he has that same idea when he says, Without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Every time he prays, he tries to, he tries to couch it in terms of, if, if this be what you want, Lord then that's what I want to do. But Paul always understood that just because he was praying for something, just because he was striving for something, just because he wanted something, that ultimately it was about seeing God's will and God's perfect sovereign plan accomplished in his life. And if we can get to that point, then prayer becomes easier because even if we don't understand what it is, we know that God's got our best in mind and God's got the plan in his hand. And so um, in Matthew 6, 10, Jesus even recognized this. Here's Jesus Christ. He is God himself who knows the mind of God. And what does he say in the Lord's Prayer? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even Jesus himself had a recognition of the fact that out of all the things that he was requesting, that ultimately he wants God's will to be done, whatever that plan and whatever that will is. Um, in Psalm 135, verse 6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. 
And so just the same as if God wants a hurricane to happen in the Philippines, if God wants an earthquake to happen in Japan, if God wants an earthquake to happen in Southern California, whatever the situation is, God has it in his control and in his hands because he's the one that makes that happen. Now, unfortunately, sometimes when we're in the middle of those things, that's not very easy to accept. If you would have told me 13 years ago that, um, in, you know, the year 2000, 9-11 hasn't happened yet, and um, I'm still a servant as associate pastor at a church and uh, still in the Marine Corps, and um, if you would have told me that, number one, I was going to be in the Navy, I was going to be end up in, be in California uh, preaching at a, a Valley Center Baptist Church where I've never even heard of Escondido or Valley Center or, you know, who knows that these even existed. Or that it would take me, you know, it would be 13 more years before we would even have a child. You know, if you would have told me all that, I would have been like, no, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. I'm never going to be in the Navy and I'm never going to end up in California. But God worked everything out in his plan, in his will, and in his way. And even through five years of struggle to have a child, when, when I look at my son today, I know that God has a plan and God has a time and God has a purpose for everything that happens. And that's what we need to focus on when we're going through those things, when we're going through the times where the road doesn't seem to go the direction that we think it should, that God is directing that path and that God is directing our our plan for his life. And when we think about today, as as, as Gunnar even mentioned, with Michael and Kelly going through this, Michael's email just spoke to me that it's, it's, uh, you know, when you're in the middle of those things, like he even acknowledged, it's hard to come sometimes see where God's hand is at, where he's being told it's healed, it's not healed, you're still, not, you're still negative, you're still negative, you're still positive, you're still positive. And there's no way to, to be able to accept those kinds of situations unless you can look past that and see that God's hand is there in the middle of it, even when it seems like a hopeless situation or like something you would want to change, something you don't want to accept. If you can accept the, God, the fact that God has it under his control and, and, and still continue to pray for it and still continue to trust God through it, that's when you really see the hand of God at work in your life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Ultimately, God's purpose and God's plan is not necessarily what's going to make us happy. It's going to be what's going to accomplish his purpose and his plan in the world and what's going to be for our good. Because I do think it's a personal it's a personal will that is meant for our good. In Jeremiah 29, 11, and I know this is written to the Jewish people, but I think it can apply to any one of God's people. It says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And anytime we're praying and we're not seeing that answer that we want and we're not seeing God's hand in it, if we can reach out to a verse like that, if we can reach out to a promise from Scripture and say that no matter what, my plan for you is to give you a hope and a future, that God's way is better than ours and God's will is far beyond anything we could hope or think. And unfortunately, sometimes his will may mean an early death. Sometimes his will may mean things that we love are taken away from us. 
Sometimes his will means pain and heartbreak. But ultimately, even though we may not be able to see it, there is something bigger going on that God has in his plan and in his purpose. And the hardest part sometimes is for us to simply accept it, not to like it, but to accept it and to trust it and to follow it wherever it takes us. The last thing I want to say here about God's will is that you can actually pray for God's will. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I don't know what you're doing in this situation. I'm sure that Paul, when he's sitting in a prison in Jerusalem and he's he's saying, Lord, I know you told me I'm supposed to go to Rome and I'm fairly certain you want me to go to Spain. So if you want me to do those things, then it'd probably be a good idea if you not if you not let me be put to death here in Jerusalem. Um, And in James chapter one, verse five, it says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. And then in Colossians 1, 9 through 11, it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, if you ever find yourself in that situation, there's nothing wrong with adding that to your prayer and saying, Lord, show me what your plan is. Help me to see a reason for this. And if you don't, at least help me to trust you. So that when I'm going through this, I can reach out and have somebody to grab onto. And then he ends this, of course, by saying, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Just by that little simple word, amen, it's one more way of Paul saying, showing his trust in the will of God. Amen. I know we throw it out. I've heard it, unfortunately, sometimes in my life by people saying, you know, the grass is green. Amen. It's a little that's a little trite. Amen is really us agreeing with God. It's us saying, so be it. It's us saying, I agree with what you're saying. I agree with your plan for this. I agree with your purpose for this. And when we say it, if we say it, understanding what it's meaning, it's we're saying that, God, I want your will to be accomplished in this situation, no matter what that will may be. And so he ends with that word, amen. And ultimately, trusting in the fact that God has it in his hands and in his control and that he has a will and a purpose that we may not see, ultimately that leads to the peace that he ends this section with. If we can't get to the place where we accept that will and that plan as we pray, that it's going to be very difficult for us to ever experience the peace of God in our life. It's always been amazing to me when I've seen someone who's dealing with a really difficult circumstance. I had a friend who... Um, um, I grew up with in high school. I lost complete track of her over the last 20 years or so. But um, two years ago, as she was dying of cancer, she has six kids she left behind. And as she had experienced breast cancer for, I think, the third time, um, and, and, and she would write a blog. Uh, she had a weekly blog that she kept up almost till the day she died. And um, just her being able to say how much she trusted God and her husband's testimony and her kid's testimony and her testimony during that time is just, was just amazing to read. And anytime I'm able to see something like that and see, well, how do these people do that? It's because they're able to look past the situation and believe that God has a purpose and a plan and trust in that perfect will of God, no matter what that circumstances is. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, um, uh, a great story and, and, and on the Christian life. He said this and kind of wrapped up what prayer really is. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God, 
through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to the word of God for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. Is our prayer life today fully submitted to the will of God? And are we striving earnestly in prayer for the mission right here in Valley Center and around the world? Let's pray. Lord, we give you the praise and honor and glory today. And we thank you that we can come before you as uh, humans that many times don't know what we need and we don't know what to ask. But we can trust in your will and in your plan for our lives. And though we see things that we don't understand, that we know that ultimately they're in your control and in your hands. Lord, may we be faithful to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter what they're going through. May they know that our prayers are with them and may they feel your love through our love as we lift them up before your your name and your throne. We give you the praise and honor and glory today in Christ's name, amen.